Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Telling the Story podcast, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. I want to say before we begin, we are now on Stitcher. You can subscribe to this podcast in the Stitcher Smart Radio app. I've been using Stitcher for years. It's great because it keeps a list of my favorite podcasts, and it always updates when there's a new episode so I don't have to download them all, and I never miss one. So all you have to do, download the Stitcher app and search for this podcast, Telling the Story. Exciting episode today. We are in September, but I'm taking it back to August. I spent most of that month on an extraordinary assignment, the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I was there for three weeks with hundreds, probably thousands, of other journalists from around the world, including roughly two dozen from my own company, Tegna, which owns my station, WXIA in Atlanta. It is such a unique experience to go out there, and I wanted to have on the podcast someone who can articulate that experience, probably much better than me. What is it like as a professional? What is it like as a person? And I've spared no expense. My guest today, one of my favorites, someone I've gotten to know now over several Olympics, longtime morning anchor at KUSA-TV in Denver, Cheryl Preheim. Welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Matt. (laughs) Cheryl, uh, I know it's been a few weeks since we all left Rio and returned to our various home cities. Have you recovered yet? I sure have. And, you know, I think the the longer I've been home, the more I even appreciate the experience and, and how much we got to see and be part of in that time in Rio. So, um, so much to talk about, and I want to talk about what it's like just personally when you're on a story like that. But first, I really want to get into the professional aspects of covering the Olympics and being down there. You were down there for three weeks as well, right? I don't, I don't believe you got there any earlier than... No, I think, did. what was it, like 24, 25 days. Yeah, so uh, quite a big chunk of time, and obviously the Olympics only cover maybe a little more than half of that. So... You get your assignment. You're going to be in Rio for nearly a month. You're going to be at the Olympics. In your head, what is your number one goal as a journalist? My number one goal is to introduce the athletes to my viewers, not as athletes, but as people. And the other part of my goal is to take the viewers along on the experience because very few people get to buy the ticket to Brazil and see it for themselves But through our stories, everyone should feel like they've experienced it as well. They don't feel left out, but feel a part of it. And I think those are the top two goals I would have for that 24 days. Yeah. And uh, I know in Atlanta, we had several dozen athletes that we were following left and right throughout the two weeks. What was it like for you in Denver? Did Did you have a lot of athletes that you were following? We did. We had a a lot of athletes that we were following. I think it was 33. Oh, my goodness. And we also wanted to dive deeper into the athletes that people know about just because they rise to the level of, you know, a Kerry Walsh Jennings or uh, Michael Phelps, you know, and you know a lot about them as athletes. But I think what connects us all and the beauty of sports is sports is the backdrop, but it's still just a story. It's just a story about someone. How did they get there? What was their journey long before this happened? And what are the parts of their story and journey that are relatable to you or I or anyone else who would not make it to an Olympics (laughs) (laughs) or maybe on a, you know, college team. But I think that is what levels the playing field. And I'm always looking for those kinds of things as I'm talking to the athletes. And, And Matt, I know it's the same for you that the preparation starts a long time beforehand 
because the best stories are told when there's a relationship as a foundation. So we really make an effort to get to know those athletes uh, a long time. So we don't just pop in their lives two weeks before the Olympics and then, you know, have some superficial relationship, but follow them over time so that we can learn about who they are as people and then translate that or, you know, transfer that into a story that, that the audience can feel a real connection to. And talk about that preparation a little bit, because I know, I think one thing that a lot of people who are not in the thick of it don't necessarily realize about the Olympics is that with these athletes, and maybe there are a few exceptions like your Michael Phelps's here and there, but for the most part, you get extraordinary access to these athletes in a way where, you know, I've covered the NFL before, the NHL, major college sports. And it's not like that. Those athletes are very highly guarded for the most mm -hmm. part. But with the Olympics, you're covering, you know, swimmers and track athletes. And they are a little limited sometimes. But for the most part, I've found that Olympic athletes are so much more available than athletes in major sports. So with that in mind, what is your preparation like? How are you reaching out to them? Is it months in advance? Is it weeks in advance? What are you doing before the Olympics even get going? Well, you make such a great point, Matt, because, you know, the IOC has had its issues and, and we've heard about some of the things that have tainted the Olympics a little bit, maybe the doping scandal with Russia and others. But for the most part, there is a purity in the Olympics and sport that you don't find in other things because most of these athletes, a vast majority of these athletes are not going to make their living doing this. They are trying their best to piece together the resources to get training time. And a lot of them have other jobs. And so they have a real sincere appreciation for someone taking interest in what they're doing. And you think they're doing this day in and day out for years, four years before anyone really pays them any attention. And so that is a great kind of foundation to do that. You know, with some of these athletes, I'm reaching out at least eight months beforehand, wow. maybe more. And so my first Olympics was London. And so there were some that I started to get to know a year before London and then have stayed in contact with consistently in the four years between London and Rio. And I think that's important too, because none of us feel great if someone just calls you up when they need something. If you want to have a real connection, you want someone to care about you, not just when they can get something from you. So I really made a point with the athletes to, you know, in the off years, check in once in a while, email, how's training going? What's new? Just thinking about you looking forward to following your road to the next Olympics and, and maintaining that connection. And I have found that has been one really a, a gift to me because you get to meet some really neat people that way. Mm -hmm. And then also establishes a deeper um, basis for telling their story because you just learn more about them that way. So for Rio, there were some athletes that I had been in touch with since London. The ones that were new, um, I really started reaching out to and trying to spend time with not only them, but their families as well about eight months out. Because with any of us, our families play a part in our story. And so I think for me, you know, getting to know like an Adeline Gray, who is a world record wrestler, I could say over and over, she's won three world championships. And it's like, yeah, but then I can tell <laughs> you that, you know, she was one of four girls born to a dad who grew up with seven boys. And he was like, I don't know what to do with girls. So we wrestled in the living room and we, you know, were very hard on furniture and we drove Adeline's mom crazy. Oh, and that's great. So, oh my gosh, we remember doing crazy stuff as kids. And then you're like, okay, 
suddenly wrestling has a different meaning. And then you can watch her journey thinking about her dad, who's a Denver police officer, you know, wrestling with her and breaking couches in the family home. And, and so it was as fun to follow her at training in, you know, the gym as it was to meet with her family in the living room and talk about how many couches they broke. Mm. And that enables you to tell those great profile stories kind of leading up to the events. And, you know, I think that was one of my favorite parts is knowing that, you know, we've got this athlete competing on Monday, but Sunday you're going to get to know this person and you're going to be floored by what you see. And then you get to Monday or whenever the event is, and you get to be there when that athlete comes off the track or out of the pool or whatever they're doing, and you're right there getting mm-hmm. to interview them after the fact. Yes, you are invested in a certain way, you know, and the viewers can get invested too. And that's when they don't feel left out of the process just because they can't be at the finish line. They find themselves cheering for someone because they know what they had to go through to get there. And this year, maybe more than the others, Matt, I started trying to introduce the athletes even uh, further away. You know, at the, not just the 100 days. On the air, you mean? Yeah, on the air. Like, I started telling stories on the air maybe three months out from Rio now and then as, as I would gather a little something, as we were gathering video and and interviews with them i would i wouldn't share everything because i knew we wanted to use some of that leading right up to rio but i started saying hey i want you to remember this name you know remember jenny simpson i want you to learn i want to introduce you to her over the next few months so that when you watch her run you'll feel like you know her and so we started doing little stories leading up not just at the hundred days out, but you know, if I, if I spent a day with Jenny at the track on a Monday, on a Tuesday morning, I would turn around a little bit of that interview and a little sound and say like, Hey, we just spent some time with her. Boy, you're going to get to know her with us the next few months. And you're right, Matt, because then, then, and then we would do the big profile piece usually the day before, um, and, and really make that connection in that timeliness. But it does, it's just like, we get excited. I mean, when I, it's it's funny. I know we're supposed to be objective, but there are times I'm like nervous <laughs> at the finish line watching some of these athletes compete because you have built a connection. And then you say, I know we've done our job because if we feel connected watching someone compete, then it's not really about sports anymore. It's about wanting someone to reach their dream because we feel like we've had a little bit of a connection through the process. Beautifully put. And I think the thing that really impressed me about your team in Denver specifically was that as much as you were doing covering the athletes, you guys explored and covered Rio more than I think anybody else from our team. You guys were all over the place getting great video, great stories. I have to imagine that was very hectic, took away a lot of your sleep. What was your strategy for making sure that you didn't neglect this vibrant city where we were just implanted for three weeks? Well, I think technology allows the world to be small if we choose to use it to do so. And and especially with the Olympics that had so much publicity ahead about political unrest, economic turmoil, crime, all those things, I felt like if we're going to have all those conversations leading up to it, it is a responsibility of mine to also show the other parts of it once we arrive, because every city has its challenges. Wherever someone's listening to this podcast can think of examples as I say that. Uh, Parts of town that are more difficult, uh, 
challenges with politics and all these kinds of things. And but then we can think of the things we love about it, too, and the places that when people come to visit, we want to show them. And I thought, well, Rio's no different. And so let's be balanced and show that, too, and and take people along on an experience. Because, you know, my kids couldn't come with me to the Olympics, but I could FaceTime with them and show them out the side of a bus what a favela is and explain to them that they should be so grateful for the things they have in their house because not everyone has running water and not everyone knows they're going to be safe when they ride their bike on the street. And I can help them experience that through technology. And that was sort of the mindset we had taking our viewers around. And it's funny, Matt, we would have conversations like, okay, if we do the show from Copacabana tomorrow, we have to get up two hours earlier and we think it's worth it. Yeah. It's worth it. You know what? We're only here once. I may never get back to Rio again. And our viewers may never get to see a show uh, live along uh, the coast or something again. Let's go for it. Why not? And what I found is there's a fulfillment in doing the work that way that that is far greater than two hours of sleep or whatever. Mm. And and that was good. And what it felt like is it infused some energy into a story that is that long. 25 days can feel very monotonous when you as the journalist aren't finding ways to experience new things and change the experience. So it, it infused some energy. I fell into our reporting and hopefully gave the viewers a different dynamic to experience as well. So, you know, there was one day we decided we, we went to the bottom of Sugarloaf Mountain. We crossed our fingers. The technology would work. <laughs> I love this story, by the way. And, and, we, and we, you know, tucked a little TVU pack so we could transmit live into a backpack. And we started at the base and we told viewers we were very transparent and said, here's our goal. Our goal is to start at the base. We're going to take you up the cable car, and hopefully by the end of the show, we'll be at the top and we'll show you the view that people travel from all the world to see. And then we said, and we hope the technology holds out. And we showed them the technology and said basically how it worked, and we're crossing our fingers, come along for the ride. And and it was a lot of fun, and we could show them a lot and, and tell them the story, some history of the of the town, some history of the mountain, you know, some funny stories about James Bond movies being filmed there and take people step by step every half hour to the top and the technology did not fail us. And that was wonderful. And then felt like a, a just like any good story should be, had a, had a starting point, had a middle point, had an ending point and, and a little bit of uh, fun in the middle. Did you make it to the top? We did. We did not All right. the, top the whole time. <laughs> I know our friends from St. Louis tried that. They did not make it to the top by the end of the show. So you guys were successful. <laughs> well, we were lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's such a good point, though, Cheryl. I know for me, you know, our entire second week of the Olympics, uh, you know, the story hovering over everything was Ryan Lochte and the swimmers yeah. and getting in trouble. And for me, one of the more gratifying moments of my coverage down in Rio was getting to go into Olympic Park and interview about a dozen just Brazilian and Rio residents and just get their feelings on why this story was so upsetting to them. Yes. Why, when they found out that it was fabricated to the degree that it was, mm -hmm. why that bothered them so much. And I think that was that was part of our responsibility as journalists is that it's not just enjoying the spectacle. It's not just being down yeah. at the Olympics. It's also trying to put a face on this city that, like you said, most people aren't going to get to see again. Yeah. You know, I, I remember talking to you about that story. And I think that's so important because isn't part of our job as journalists and storytellers to give people a voice, to give a lot of different people a voice. Yeah. Sometimes just in the way that 
people are interested in things, you know, some voices are, are much louder and somehow get a bigger megaphone than others. And for you to do that story was impactful because they deserved a voice too. And it gave great context to a story that was taking on a life of its own. And people were sometimes wondering like, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is it was, it was offensive to a country that had worked so hard to overcome these challenges and then overcome some judgments about it. And they were so close to having an Olympics without an incident. And then it turned out there actually wasn't the incident as it was portrayed. And so that that context I thought was really important. And and I think, you know, as however people feel about that particular story, it provided a great opportunity to find a, di a different layer to some of the stories that we told. You know, for, for instance, you know, we could talk, I, I did one that talked about you know, unfortunately, this is one of the stories people are going to remember about the Olympics, but which are the ones you, you think should be rising to the top, mm. you know, of all the good things that were happening. And then you made, I made a little joke. I said, gosh, I can't tell this story without my mom's voice ringing in my head saying, Cheryl, if you leave out part of the story, it's still alive, you know, <laughs> a live omission. I said, oh my gosh, it's like I'm 11 years old again. And my mom's talking to me in the kitchen. <laughs> Just what you wanted, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. And so I thought that that was that was really, really important. And I think that's, that's one of the things I enjoy so much. And I think it's a, it's an important part of every storyteller's job is to not just look at the story that's obvious, but to really consider what that story needs in terms of context or other branches to the tree, hmm. because life is not one dimensional and no issue is either. And no person is either. And so to say, to stop and say, I've got to cover Ryan Lochte, but what other voice needs to be heard? And for you to go talk to the Brazilians is a perfect example of that. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Cheryl Preheim, morning anchor at KUSA TV in Denver. We're talking about the Olympics, what it's like to cover it. So fascinating from a professional perspective, but also a very strange experiment from a personal <laughs> perspective. Yes. Cheryl, uh, how would you describe that part of the assignment? In fact, I, I, you mentioned on one of your uh, one of your comments earlier about how you know you talk about well, if we get up and do this live shot at Copacabana, we're gonna have to get up two hours earlier. But you know what? This is our only chance to do this. We gotta we gotta push it. Mm -hmm. Is that just how you approached it? Like I might be exhausted by the end of this, but this is it. I got to go for it. Yeah, it is one of those, you know, once in a lifetime things. And, and I think it doesn't just have to be about, you know, not everyone may cover an Olympics, but you can think about what opportunity do you have as a journalist or storyteller when a, when a great opportunity to tell a story presents itself, it's worth it. It's worth it to really go after it and say, I will get a nap another time, you know? Yes. <laughs> Or, you know, or there'll be a day I do leave the office at the right time or whatever. And to take advantage of those times because those opportunities are special. And if you're in the business, it's because you appreciate when they come up and you feel great about being able to do that. And so it's professionally and personally rewarding. But there is there is a grind element. And we were trying to balance it out. I mean, I think for all of us, you know, the days are 17, sometimes 18 hours or longer. But you know, and then you have that one day you're saying like, okay, today, I'm going to sleep that extra hour, because you do want to also be sharp. So you be, can, can be creative. And you can, you know, you don't want to be so tired that it's counterproductive. But it is a push. And, and it's such an unusual 
I mean, think about another time that you're kind of sleeping in a dorm and eating tater tots three meals a day mm -hmm. and working 25 days straight to that degree. It's it's unusual. Um, and so you kind of know that going in and you know that it's worth it and you don't want to you want you want to leave it all on the field, so to speak. Yeah. And I, I think. For me, you know, this, this, for both of us, I believe this was our third Olympics. You said you yep. started in London. Yep. Um, and I remember the Winter Olympics in Sochi two years ago coming back from that. And I got sick on the flight home and I was sick with just a common cold for a week. I couldn't go back to work. It was not so much the cold, but because I was so drained from everything else, my body was almost immobilized by a common cold. Yeah. And, it also, I think, affected my work to a certain degree where I just, you know, at a certain point, I just kind of ran out of gas in Sochi. Mm -hmm. And this time around, I really made the effort to pace myself because I think yeah. it's like you said, the journalist instinct and the storyteller's instinct is this is my one opportunity to go for it. I've got to do everything I can. But I think the one thing that I've found is that if I don't pace myself, I'm not going to have the juice right. to be able to do my job well, but also just stay healthy at the end of the day. That's exactly right. And I've done it both ways. In London, I did not pace myself and it was and I, I was very sick when I came home. And I've learned to do that, too, because I think if there is something about wanting to write it. Well, you don't just want to crank it out and just fill space. You want to do something that is thoughtful and and creative or fun. You want it to rise to a different level and you've got to have you know, you don't want to be so fried that you're still, we've all done it. We've stared at our computer screens. It's like, I can't think, like, I know what I'm trying to write. Why aren't the words coming? And, and exhaustion can play into that. So I think pacing yourself is really important and not to feel guilty about that. Um, no, no one's working, no, no one's, you know, going back and sleeping for 10 hours. That's not the point, right. but just when I have the opportunity to refuel, I need to take it because the next story is going to be better or the next live shot's going to have more energy or those things are going to be better off in the end if we do that. And I think that's important. And I know in our workspace, we were trying to help each other do that. You know, the, the colleague I'm working with, Matt, sometimes I say, Hey Matt, I think it's really important that we get an extra hour of sleep tonight so that we can really do something different tomorrow and write something that we're proud of. I mean, I, I know I misspoke on the air once. I didn't even realize I had said it. I think I said, you know, the United States won a hundred gold. Well, we, we hadn't, we had just won a hundred medals mm -hmm. and I didn't even connect it in my head because I was working on an hour of sleep that day. So I think that's a really important point for whether someone, whatever somebody's covering that is one of those assignments that's a number of days long and you know it's going to be a grind it's like finding the balance between putting in the effort you know is necessary to to do something at it at that level but also saying i also need to protect my personal sanity and my my health <laughs> <So> <laughs> and my true. and my creative juices and it's and it's i think different too you know I, i've covered plenty of legitimately giant breaking news stories in atlanta and before that uh, my previous job in buffalo where you're going for about a week and it's about six or seven days of, you know, 12, 13, 14 hour days. If it's weather related, a lot of times you're in adverse conditions and that can be grueling. But I feel like most journalists can can keep focused and push it through a week. Three weeks is a different ball game, and, yeah. and not just from an energy level, too. But I mean, you know, we both have families. You mentioned your kids earlier. And I think that plays a part, too, is just, you know, we all have normal lives that are not what life is like 
at the Olympics. Right. And I don't, do you try to just as a wife and mother, do you try to compartmentalize that part of your life too? Or how do you pace yourself that way? Gosh, that's maybe one of the hardest parts of a assignment that length. I covered the Super Bowl this year. It was 10 days. And that is very different. That still felt long, but not 25. Right. I mean, that's just a different deal. I mean, and, and to have a, a, a partner at home who's supportive in that way, who doesn't just say, okay, you can go, but say like, no, go. I, we got it. It's all right. I'm excited for you. But it does take a toll. I have four kids and it takes a, a toll on them. And so for me, what I try to do is to make sure that in the craziness of the day, I've got to find that time. There needs to be a FaceTime conversation, not as I'm writing a script, <laughs> no, but no. to be able to eject myself for 10 minutes into a hallway somewhere and really be engaged and tell my kids like how what's going on there? How is school? What's happening? And, and just still be present in their lives and to let them know. But I also take them along for the for the ride too you know there's a couple there's one funny story jenny simpson she won a bronze medal the first american to win a bronze in the 1500 and we were doing a story with her and the only time she could do it was on a saturday and i said oh gosh i couldn't find a babysitter and i said okay jenny there might be some kids in the back seat of the car when I, when I, you know, attach the GoPros to the vehicle. And she's like, oh, that's cool. That's fine. Cause she's super laid back and very nice. So sure enough, here we are. And I've got GoPros and my husband's driving and I'm hanging out the door with my camera and the kids are in the back and they're super excited. And, and then guess what? Who are they so excited to watch that, you know, when, when track and field comes up? So it's not always appropriate to do that. And, and um, but, but I would come home and a lot of times, you know, on top of the show and the other stories I'm doing, this is kind of additional. So I did a lot of logging and writing at home on the weekends mm. or in the evenings. And I would show the, I would show the kids the interviews and I would get them to know the athletes too. And, and, and what I found myself noticing more this time is the stories I was relaying to them about the athletes. I thought, now that's the story I should tell the viewers. Cause if I'm telling my family about it, guess what? That's the interesting part. Like Jenny Simpson is a middle schooler who's sitting in the cafeteria one day and a teacher comes up to her and says, you should consider running. And she's like, Oh no, no, my family, they're not really, we're not really into running. We don't, our family's not super athletic. And the, and the teacher said, I see some potential in you. You should try it. And now she's the first American to ever win a bronze medal in that race. Wow. And she, and she talks about if that one teacher hadn't talked to me, like my whole life would be different. And I found myself telling that story to my kids. And I said, I, that's the story I should tell tomorrow on the news, mm. you know? And so there's, it, it's kind of neat how that it can all play together, but, but the missing our families and the people in our lives, whether you're a parent or not, or married or not, there are people who are special and important in your lives and, and you will, you will feel the void. And there's of, just normal life too. I mean, it's, it's, you know, your own bed, right. <laughs> Like you said, not eating tater tots on a regular basis. I know I've enjoyed getting back to a tater totless existence here in Atlanta. And it's funny. I'll, I'll get your quick comment on this and then we'll move on. But okay. I've kind of hypothesized that most journalists, uh, at least most uh, American journalists, I feel like it is typically a, about a three to four week experience at the Olympics. And my hypothesis is for the first week and a half to two weeks ish. You're so focused and you've got so much work to do that you don't realize how much you're missing your life at home. But it's usually yeah. around the end of week two and the beginning of week three where 
people start getting antsy. You see more phone calls home happening in the workspace. You see people starting to get weary and just tired and ready to get home. And then that goes on for a few days. And then everybody kind of rallies up for that final push through the end. And then, and then finally we all get to go home. But is that kind of your experience as well? That's beautifully put because the first (laughs) week you're just trying to learn the bus system. You're excited to see the country. You're just figuring out where the coffee stand is and how fast you can get one. (laughs) Um, And then that middle ground happens and, and you realize you're still 16 days from getting home or whatever. And and that's, that's true. And it's good to kind of know that going in because then you can say, Hey, it is going to pick up steam. It is going to come back around and, and go fast at the end. You're listening to the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. My guest is Cheryl Preheim, KUSA TV anchor, who just wrapped up three and a half weeks in Rio, 25 days at the Olympics. Cheryl, um, I like to use this last section of the podcast to talk about advice for younger journalists, Olympics aside. Uh, And one thing I learned when we were down in Rio is you have a fascinating story about how you got to TV and where you are. You told me the full version over at the Olympics. Why don't we give me the condensed version here, just about your start in media and how you made the unlikely move to television. (laughs) It's all a fluke. (laughs) <laughs> it's all a fluke. I still I go to work every day and say, how did this happen? How did I get here? And it's been 20 years. But I was uh, I was going to be in the Read Across America program. It was in the final phases of that. And a friend in college who was working at KUSA already said, hey, you love to write. Um, you should consider journalism. I mean, I'm about I'm in my senior year of college. I thought, well, it's a little late to to shake this all out now. Long story short, I got an internship at Channel 9. I was hooked. I'd come in late at night after my hours as an intern were over, and I would rewrite stories and and work on learning how to do all that. My internship supervisor found out I'd been doing that. I thought I was in trouble, but instead he said, I want to recommend you for a job, and I became a producer and a writer and reporter at a radio station in town, the news radio station. Did that for a couple of years, was working on some investigative stories, and the news director at KUSA called me in the newsroom one day and said, could you turn that story for our 5 o'clock show? I thought, well, thank goodness I'm not in a baseball hat today. <laughs> that happened a lot. And I, and I went over there, and I did the story that day, and I've been there ever since. Wow. That was almost it was 17 and a half years ago. And, uh, and it's such an inspiring story, too, because I think – so many people who want to get into journalism think like you did when you were first approached with that idea that, oh, well, if I haven't wanted to do this since I was six, then yeah. I'm getting way too late of a start. It's never going to work out. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine, you know, in your years in the industry, you've seen a lot of people come up who have wanted to do it forever. And a lot of people come up who just kind of decided but wound up having a knack for it. Well, and sometimes it's because we're too compartmentalize in what we think it is anyway. I mean, when I look back, I love doing all the things that being a journalist requires. I was inquisitive. I liked to write. I liked to um, connect with people, interview people. I felt very comfortable speaking in public, all those things. And I just hadn't put that whole equation together into this specific job description. And then when the everything lined up. I thought that is the one thing I was looking for, but didn't realize I had been looking for. Mm. And it just happened to be my senior year of college. Mm. That's great. You also work the morning shift and have done Mm -hmm. so for a long time. 
I know I have always dreaded that shift, and I know so many college students and aspiring journalists dread that shift. You have embraced it, and you seem to enjoy it. Uh, Make the case why the morning shift is the way to go. I love working on a team, and it is the ultimate team sport. Every part's important. No part is more important than the other. Mornings are the way to start the day. We have autonomy. We get to, as a team, because there aren't a lot of people there at that time, make decisions, be involved in the editorial process, be an active, I love to write. I like to think about how stories are stacked. That's the old producer and writer in me. And I love that part of it. I like starting off the day in that way and thinking about how we can set the tone for a viewer's day as well. So I, I love to do that. And then um, from a family perspective, it's good. It's it's early hours, but then I get to you know be there when my kids get home from school too. So professionally, I, I can see so many great great things about it. And personally, there are some wonderful things too. Beautifully put. Uh, What is the biggest lesson you have for people listening to this, aspiring journalists, maybe college students, maybe folks in their first job, for the people who want to do what you do and want to have a lot of the success that you've had in your career? I would say it's just as important just to know who you are and what's important to you and to put your life experiences into the stories that you do and to to really make an effort not just to look for the obvious story, but to take that a step or two or three further to see what other things, you know, we should all be giving the story as it is, but what context, what experience, how can you make someone watching it think about the world around them differently? How can we make the stories we tell relate to the people around us so they can all take something away, whether it's happening in their town or in their state or in their country and say, like, I see how that could apply to my life too. And give me one example of how you did that down in Rio. Oh, I did a story on Missy Franklin after she had her disappointing race in the 200 back. She's the world world record holder, and she did not make the final. Mm-hmm. And I just talked about how in life, you know, we can look at a win one way or we can look at it a totally different way and talked about how the win isn't always what a clock says, but maybe how we handle something that didn't go the way we wanted in our lives. And it's easy to think about other people and be gracious and humble when things go your way. But what about when they don't? And I just talked in the story about how we've all put our heart and soul into something in our lives that didn't turn out how we wanted. And, and maybe that's the one thing that could teach us the most. So it wasn't really about swimming at all. That's why she's the best. Cheryl Preheim, before we let you go, I always like to end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? (laughs) People love it when I ask that question. Well, I would say, Matt, the thing that I'd like to touch on is just a, a highlight of watching you work and a story that you did that really impacted me about a marathon runner. Uh, who ran without shoes and and loved to run and found a way to do it, whether the circumstances around him supported it or not. And I thought, you know, it's a perfect example of finding a connection. Here's a here's a guy from another part of the world that most people would say I have nothing in common with. But when you get a little deeper, you say, no, you know, what aren't I doing 
that's on my heart to do that I say the circumstances are just preventing me from. And if you push through that, you never know, you might have your Olympic moment, so to speak. And um, I, I just want to tell you that I, I loved watching you work and, and seeing the way you do your stories. And, and it just really, I think for all of us who love this business, um, we can really appreciate that there are people around us who who care enough to to find those stories. I was thinking about the other night how when everything in our world has changed, you know, over time, the one thing that hasn't changed is that people desire a connection and want to share a good story, whether it's on a drive or at the dinner table or with a group of friends. And so what we do can it is like stands the test of time and we have to learn to do it differently as the technology around us changes but the the power and the importance of a story never will so it is always a joy to see people doing it they're doing it and doing it so well so it was so fun to be with you in rio oh same here and and it's and it's so funny you bring up that story too so the yeah the marathon runner from zimbabwe his name is pardon and lovu and What's so interesting to me about that story, the little footnote that I would add, is that, you know, we did this story about this young man from Zimbabwe who ran without shoes, just started running, loved it, didn't realize that, you know, people across the world were running with these beautiful shoes, or I think he did know, he just couldn't afford it, and so he just did it anyway. And, but the cool thing for me about that story was that he, the reason I did it was not so much because he lives in Atlanta now, but because he lives in the state of Georgia now. He lives yeah. in Augusta, which is several hours away from Atlanta. Our market doesn't cover it, but his story, despite not really having an Atlanta connection, still really hit home. It was one of the stories that when I got back to my station that uh, my coworkers were telling me that they enjoyed. It was the yeah. story that spread the furthest on my Facebook page, got more social traction than any other one that I did. So again, like I think like you said, the, the best storytelling in the those kind of human connections really do conquer all. And the Olympics is just such a great way to show so much of that in such a short period of time. Yeah, it's, I, I could not agree more. All right. Well, Cheryl, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining Thank me. You. Thank you. I love your blog. Thanks for doing it. Absolutely. And the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes, and you can now subscribe on Stitcher Smart Radio. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.